Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Crime Vine podcast. I am your host, Felicity Brooke, and if you are new here, basically this is a true crime and occasionally conspiracy theory podcast, and I like to stick with the cases that aren't as widely known across the country or even the world for that matter. I feel like I like to stick with the cases that are, I guess you could say, more low profile, that don't just don't have as much exposure. And the reason for that being is I believe everybody's case is just as important and there's no case that is more important than the next. And the people that um, aren't going to get the exposure from the other, you know, true crime podcasts or YouTubers, I figured, I mean, I'm not a big podcast, but I figured... The little that I could do to make a difference or maybe help find answers, Uh, maybe someone knows something about one of the cases I'm covering and can give information to lead to the solving of the case, that is just basically what I'm looking for type thing. Also, I do these because they're very interesting and I like to... I love researching true crime. Yes, it does freak me out. And this case, especially, there's just something about it that's extremely chilling. And it's not even the most gruesome case that I've ever covered. It's just something about it leaves an unsettling feeling in my stomach. And it might do the same to you. So just a warning. Also, I do want to take this time. I'm sorry this intro is going to be kind of long, but I have a lot that I have to say. Um, It is good to be recording again. So good. I have missed it so much. And the reason why I took about a three month hiatus from Instagram and from uploading episodes is because I can't talk too much about it because I can't really put that information out on the internet. But basically, it's for my safety. So that's just why I've been gone. I didn't leave because I'm like, oh, I just don't want to do podcasting anymore or just because I decided that true crime wasn't my thing. That is totally not the case. I did not abandon you guys. It hurt, honestly, to just kind of walk away from my Instagram and from my podcast for a while because I have built this podcast from nothing pretty quickly too and I'm so proud of it and I love talking to you guys and I love the community that we have here so it has honestly killed me to not record and I'm like every time every week every Sunday I'm like well that's another episode that could have been uploaded that's another this that could have you know so it did pain me I just want to let you guys know that but anyway um enough enough rambling about that Um, If you guys could also take a few moments to rate and review this podcast on whatever platform you are listening to, it really helps boost the ratings for the show and give it exposure to other people that don't necessarily know about the show. So, all right, now that we've got all that done, I guess we could head into this case. So, if you guys don't already, grab yourselves a drink because this vine will rope you in. All right, so for this episode, we are taking things back to Clinton, Missouri in 1971. Now, Clinton, Missouri was a quiet little farm town located in Henry County. With a population at about 7,000, it definitely gave off a small town city feel. Residents make a living by hard work at factory jobs, farming, and supporting local businesses. It's a town where people wave to each other as they walk, people meet up in the morning at the local diner to have coffee, and when high school football season starts, the community gathers together on Friday nights to support their hometown team. Now, Angela Marie Hammond was born on February 9th, 1971 to Marsha and Chris Hammond. For the first four years, the family lived in Kansas City, Missouri, but then they soon relocated to Clinton, Missouri, where Marsha's parents were. 
They figured it would be much easier living near them in Clinton instead of having to make an hour and 14 minute journey just to visit her family. Now, a few years later, the Hammond family welcomed a sweet baby boy named Lauren Hammond. Now, unfortunately, a few years went on and Marsha and Chris actually got a divorce and Marsha ended up moving over 20 miles away to an isolated farm area out in the country in Montrose, Missouri. And Chris, on the other hand, traveled back to Oloth, Kansas, where he eventually remarried. Now, despite the unfortunate circumstances, Angela and Lauren grew up very happy and in a stable environment where their parents were actively involved in their lives. And Chris and Marsha really tried their best to make sure the children felt loved and taken care of and didn't have the disturbance feel of a broken family. They were always reassured that their parents loved them and despite the different living situations that they were extremely loved by both parents. Now we are going to fast forward about 19 years. In November of 1990, Angela was about 19 years old and she had met a man named Rob who Rob was an 18 year old high school star athlete and he was actually planning to join the military right after. Now the two quickly fell in love and the following year in January of 1991 she announced to Rob that she was actually expecting and Rob as you can imagine was just absolutely ecstatic about the news and he actually asked Angela to marry him and of course Angela accepted. Now, the newly engaged, incredibly happy couple soon moved in together and they rented a trailer home and just started living their lives and planning ahead for the new adventure of what life had to offer them. Rob still had plans to follow through with enlisting in the military later that summer, while Angela was working at the Union State Bank as a night processor and she was actually taking college courses in Central Missouri State University, which was about 30 miles away in Warrensburg, Missouri. Now, it is Thursday night, April 4th, 1991, and there was a family barbecue at Angela's mother's house. This was your typical family gathering where everyone was just spending time with each other and just genuinely having a good time in good company. So it's about shortly after 9 p.m. and Angela and Rob decided to head back to Clinton because um, Rob actually had to babysit his younger brother around 10 p.m. So Angela and Rob headed back to Clinton to Rob's mother's house and Angela actually dropped Rob off. Now, after she dropped Rob off, Angela actually went into town with her best friend Kyla and they just kind of walked the square and just kind of roamed around downtown having a good time again with good company. Now, it's around 11:15 at night and Kayla and Angela, they just decided to part ways. Angela was very tired, so they just decided it was time to head in for the night. Um, and Angela decided to give Rob a phone call at the nearest payphone on the corner of 210 uh, South 2nd Street where the food barn store parking lot was situated. Now, it's not, it was not common for everyone to have a cell phone in this time. Cell phones are so easy, easily accessible today, 
But I mean, you're talking about the 1990s where cell phones were just starting to make a debut and they were expensive. I mean, Angela didn't even have a phone at home. She didn't have a landline. So the payphone was kind of her only option. Now, if you're thinking about it from this time, this day and age, you know, 2019 standpoint, a girl at night at 1115 at night would never, ever use a paid phone because that is just a recipe for disaster. But times were different. This was a small town. Crime wasn't really a thing at this time in this particular city. So she felt safe and comfortable doing it. And she just wanted to let Rob know what's going on. So... She called him and she told him that she was exhausted and she just wanted to go home and soak in a bath and just relax. Now they stayed on the phone for about 30 minutes and so now we're looking at about 11.45 and a terrible tragedy took place. Now during the duration of the call, Angela noticed something rather odd. She saw an older modeled green Ford F-150 pickup truck just watching her um, kind of roaming the streets would turn around come back but still kind of stayed in her, the same vicinity as her so she was kind of creeped out nonetheless but she was also trying to make it seem like she was unbothered by it so moments later the driver pulled over near her and stepped outside of the truck and walked towards the unoccupied phone booth next to her and again she's trying not to seem too creeped out by this but clearly she's a little alarmed you know, that that alarm in her head, you know, the safety alarm is definitely going off at this point. But she figures, you know, I'm on the phone with Rob. If anything happens, he'll know. And even to me, I when I'm scared and lately it's been happening a lot. But when I'm walking somewhere late at night and there's not much lighting or I'm alone or what have you, I will call somebody on my phone. It's a safety measure that I've always been taught and I've just always done it so to me I would think she's perfectly not perfectly fine but that you know not, nobody would try anything while you're on the phone because that's pretty normally if you're on the phone somebody will just kind of either come back to you later or if they really wanted to hurt you or they just wouldn't try anything because then there would be a witness this guy did not care so a few seconds later he returned to his truck and grabbed a flashlight and he actually started waving it around as if he was searching for something so Angela's trying to settle herself down and maybe talk to this guy and see like maybe he's not as creepy as he's kind of acting maybe he's just totally innocent and I'm just you know making stuff up but so Angela asked if he needed to use the phone but he told her no and then all of a sudden, Rob on the other end of the phone, who was seven blocks away from where Angela was, heard in a horrifying, the most horrifying thing he will probably ever hear in his life. He heard Angela scream from the other side of the phone. Immediately, Rob tossed the phone aside and he jumped out of his seat and he knew he had to go find Angela and rescue her. Now, on his way to her, a similar truck matching the description of what Angela described to him darted straight past him, and there was a woman struggling with the driver, and he heard the woman scream, Robbie. And he hastily put his vehicle in reverse and made a sharp U-turn to give, to, to 
catch up to this car, this truck. But, and by doing this, he would harm his transmission, ultimately going against him later on. So the pursuit continues for approximately two miles and Rob's transmission gave out from, you know, switching the gear of his car so quickly and not breaking while he does it. Now, I don't know too much. I'm not a huge car expert. I know a fair share, but if you change the gear of your car and you're not in, um, if you're not holding down the brake and your car is moving, you will really mess up your transmission. So if he completely blew his transmission, that leads me to believe he didn't even brake at all. And he's just like, you know what? Fuck it. I got to go find her and just did what he had to do. Unfortunately, his car eventually completely stopped in the middle of the road. And he saw Angela in this vehicle disappear with the unknown perpetrator. Rob has no vehicle at this point. He's got no way of getting to Angela. So he had no other choice but to head back for town and get some help. Luckily, a motorist passed him and he noticed Rob and picked him up and Rob asked him to take him to the police station so he could notify them of all the events that had just happened. He arrived at the department just shy over midnight and reported the entire incident of what happened to the authorities. Rob told the police that Angela described the perpetrator as a male and as filthy and bearded, that he was wearing overalls and a dark colored baseball hat with glasses and had a full beard with a mustache. The truck he was driving was a green Ford F-150 with a white top and he described to be between late 60s to early 70s. There had been partial damage on the left side front fender and the rear window there was kind of like a painting of a fish jumping out of the water. Now obviously they composited a sketch of the person of interest and although it kind of met with some scrutiny because it doesn't feature the key details characteristics that Angela described to Rob. So people were kind of like, how can you find the guy if you're not even describing, if you didn't draw the sketch to exactly what Angela had said she saw? So initially the police were skeptical of Rob's story because they thought it seemed to be a little too artificial and a little too made up and more, I guess you could say, movie-like. Nevertheless, they began their investigation and they uncovered Rob's vehicle undrivable in the middle of the street, following the same story that Rob gave them. So they're starting to be like, okay, maybe this actually did happen, but they were still a little skeptical. So shortly after they found um, Rob's car, they found Angela's car abandoned at the shopping center parking lot where she was at the payphone with her purse still inside. Now, why would Angela's car be abandoned with her purse still inside if Rob made this all up? So now the people, the police are, are starting to really be like, okay, maybe we really are dealing with a missing persons case. So Detective Damon Parsons of the Clinton Police Department notified Marsha on 
what all just happened and of course this frightened the living daylights out of her she was just told that her daughter was kidnapped and her daughter's four months pregnant this is i mean obviously very very scary for any mother to go through but also adding the fact that angela's pregnant so that's two lives right there this really just was a recipe for absolute disaster so of course marcia got a hold of chris and she told him the unfortunate news that she was given. He promptly made the trip to Clinton, Missouri and resided there for several weeks to help try and locate his daughter and figure out what is going on and get to the bottom of this. For the first week of the investigation, Ra was actually considered the prime suspect in Angela's disappearance. This is pretty common for any missing persons case. They always usually look at the significant other or they look at, um, you know, the people closest to the victim. So Rob in this case is Angela's significant other. So he's the one that reported it. So of course they had to look at him and he was the prime suspect in the beginning. But eventually he did do a polygraph test and he ended up passing the test. And two witnesses did actually end up coming forward, claiming to see the same exact truck that Rob had described to the police. So, of course, naturally, the police were like, okay, maybe this isn't our guy. Maybe he is completely innocent. Maybe we should start looking elsewhere for a suspect. So, as the police continued rounding up friends and family for questioning and trying to figure out additional details, they focused on Angela's ex-boyfriend who was a 17-year-old by the name of Bill Barker. Now, there were rumors going around that he was actually the father of Angela's baby. Of course, Bill denied those allegations, and after looking further into things, the police realized that he was of no threat and that he had no involvement and he was no longer considered a suspect. Naturally, the community all came together, putting up missing persons posters all throughout the town. They were putting up photographs on local storefront windows, diners, truck stops. I mean, you name it. They put pictures and flyers everywhere to get the word out that if a, you see a woman matching this description, that she is in danger and you need to call it into the authorities. Now, over 250 volunteers, including friends and family and the police, conducted an air and ground search scouring the entirety of Clinton looking for Angela. I mean, you name it. They were looking at water wells, old country roads, um, places that were isolated, you know, off trails that wouldn't that wouldn't be as populated, maybe this man took her and they're hiding somewhere you know they checked the woods they checked fields barns abandoned places you name it they were looking everywhere for Angela and unfortunately they did not have any luck in finding her now 11 days later the Clinton Police Department contacted the Missouri Rural Crime Scene Squad seeking help into the investigation as a result, 25 police officers from 15 neighboring counties happily accommodated and was like, we're here to help you. Let's find this POS, basically. 
So the Missouri Highway Patrol also looked through their database of all registered vehicles and a list of 1,600 pickup trucks matching what Angela's kidnapper was possibly driving was compiled and sought out for new suspects. But again, this didn't lead with any leads or anything substantial and nothing really came from this. By now, everyone is completely frustrated. Of course, the police are confused as to how the perpetrator and Angela seem to have just disappeared. I mean, after all, this is a very small town, so perhaps maybe they fled and they're not in town anymore. They didn't know what was going on, but also they weren't as experienced with dealing with this type of crime because it is such a small town at the time and this wasn't a frequent thing that was going on. So everyone's confused and scared and worried. There is a pregnant missing woman out there who seems to be in grave danger. Everyone is terrified. They started to consider the possibility that Angela's abduction could be connected to two similar disappearances that had occurred within an 80 mile radius months earlier in January and February of the same year. In Max Creek, Missouri, which was a small country town with a population of fewer than 500, um, it was a Saturday, January 19, 1991, 42-year-old Trudy Darby was working the night shift at the local K&D convenience store. And around 10 p.m., Trudy was getting ready to close up the store for the night when she noticed there were three suspicious men just kind of lingering just outside of the store. So obviously she's very scared at this point. She doesn't know what's going on. So she called her son and she asked him to stop by and kind of help her because she didn't feel comfortable and she was scared. Her son said, of course, I'll do it. And he arrived within 10 minutes of the phone call. And within those 10 minutes, his mother was nowhere to be found. Now, two days later on January 21st, they found her body nude and she was discovered 15 miles away in Little Nianguo River. And she had been shot twice in the head by a 38 caliber. And then one month later on Wednesday, February 27th, Another very similar incident occurred within 80 miles in Nevada, Missouri. Another small town about the same size as Clinton, um, there was a woman named Cheryl Ann Kenny, who was about 30 years old. She was a wife and a mother of two, and she was working at the Quality Convenience Store located on Business 71 Highway. It was again around 10 p.m., and... She was accompanied by the store janitor and a male customer. The store typically stayed open until midnight, but the night was relatively slow, so she decided to close up the shop and she allowed the janitor to leave early. So Cheryl proceeded to count the store money in the back room, and about 17 minutes later, she set the store's alarm system and made her way to her white Chevy uh, resting in the parking lot. Now it's unclear as to what truly happened afterward, but she never returned home and she hasn't been seen since. 
Now we're going to fast forward about three years later in the summer of 94, the case of the abduction and murder of, of Trudy Darby was solved. The perpetrators were 15-year-old Jesse Rush and his half-brother Marvin Chaney. They were arrested after Jesse had visited Kansas City and bragged to multiple friends that he was responsible for Trudy's murder and he successfully got away with it. So Jesse's friends were a little shocked by this and they were kind of scared. So they, of course, told the police the shocking news that they just heard. And of course, he was interrogated and he ultimately confessed to the crime. Jesse didn't hold back there. He was forthcoming with the details and was totally honest about the crime. He professed that he and another accomplice had planned the abduction of Trudy beforehand, that they had entered the store and held her up at gunpoint, stealing about $220 from the cash register and forcing her into their vehicle. She attempted to defend herself, which only angered them even more. They then brought her to a nearby barn where they would sexually and physically assault her. And after they had raped her, they shot her once in the head and put her body in the trunk of their car and took her to the river to dispose of her. When they opened the trunk, they noticed she was breathing, so they shot her twice more and discarded her body. Now, while Jesse was in jail awaiting trial, he became acquainted with several other inmates and one of those inmates was a guy named Edward Thomas, who he befriended because he actually thought that Edward was a lawyer and that he could help him get away with this type of thing or just lessen the charges just to get out of prison type thing. And um, Jesse actually wrote 13 letters to Thomas that incriminated him even further with Darby's murder and also suggested that he and Chandy are behind many more audacious unsolved crimes that hadn't yet been solved. So he just kind of dug his grave a little deeper and uh, led that led the police to believe maybe we should look further into these cold cases because these men might be our perpetrators. So in October of 1991, a new possible lead emerged from a man named Russell Smith. He was living in Canada and he decided to visit family in Ulrich, Missouri. Now he hadn't any knowledge regarding this whole situation. He didn't know who Angela was. He didn't know what happened to her. He just saw a missing persons poster. And apparently once he saw this poster, he had sort of like an epiphany and immediately remembered something, some very important information that could possibly lead to solving this case. Now he immediately contacted the the Clinton police department and he told them that during September, he witnessed a woman matching Angela's description getting inside of a green pickup truck that he that had a white top and mural of the on the rear window after leaving a drugstore in Canada. Now, Russell's obviously very bold allegation caused Clinton's police chief, Bob Pattison, to contact Bob McGuire of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police to alert them of 
what he, he had just heard and this new possible lead. Now, McGuire followed up on the sighting, and considering Angela was four months pregnant at the time of her disappearance, they came to the conclusion that she would have already may have given birth. So now they have more to look for. So they proceeded to visit hospitals, baby stores, anything to do with where Angela could have gone with the connection of a baby in this area. They had Angela's photograph with them and they were showing them to staff members, asking them if they had you know, seen her, if they had um, seen anybody that matched the description of her or the perpetrator. But unfortunately, nobody recognized her or knew anything. Now, in November of 1991, the production crew for Unsolved Mysteries actually arrived in Clinton, Missouri to film a reenactment of Angela's disappearance. The episode was broadcasted on television the very next month with the latest television coverage. David Rader, the producer for the television show, urged law enforcement to not raise their expectations too high because... Only two of the 49 missing persons cases that they had covered had actually been solved by the public. So they said, don't get your hopes up. We're doing this because it there is that chance. There is that one in, or two, I guess you could say, in 49 chance of the public solving this case. But don't get your hopes up. Still do your job because we don't know if this is going to work. By the end of 91, the investigation into Angela's disappearance was unfortunately kind of just frustrating everybody. There was no answers to anything. Um, Everyone was confused and just overall extremely frustrated with what is going on. So in the summer of 92, Another mystery occurred, and this time it was in Springfield, Missouri. And there was um, a woman named Cheryl Levitt, Susie Streeter, and Stacy McCall. And those three mysteriously vanished without a trace on the same exact night a year later. Now, their disappearance sent an incredible shock to everyone all across the nation and shortly after Marsha actually became friends with Stacy's mother Janice McCall and they formed a unique bond becoming a moral support shoulder to lean on in the wake of both of their tragedies they were actually both invited to be on the Oprah Winfrey show to keep their missing loved ones in the spotlight and in hopes of finding new leads and maybe bring themselves a little bit of closure and finding some answers and truth to what actually happened. Unfortunately, Angela's disappearance went stagnant for years. The Oprah Winfrey show didn't bring anything concrete enough and the police had ruled out Jesse Rush and Marvin Chaney as suspects in Angela's disappearance and they couldn't locate any hard evidence leaking them to Cheryl's vanishing either. In April of 2009, new information was brought forth by the Clinton Police Department and they provided a statement to the media claiming that they have new evidence in the case, mainly DNA evidence um, due to advancements in technology and forensic science, 
but they never elaborated fully as to what they found out and came across. Since then, very little updates has surfaced in the subsequent years. It has been 28 years since Angela just mysteriously disappeared into this green Ford F-150 with a white top. And lack of answers has continued and friends and family of Angela's are just haunted by these, this unfortunate truth of what happened. Nonetheless, they had to resume their normal lives. They had to kind of just get on with it. And the Hammond family still pursues foreclosure with a relentless passion and makes sure Angela's memory isn't forgotten. They are still in contact with Rob and they actually consider him as part of the family. And Rob just as much suffered the same unfortunate circumstances as they did. And Rob actually eventually he moved 60 miles away and is working for a construction company and he's got a beautiful family of his own. Yes, he does have heartache and the what ifs still probably linger around him today, but Angela's family embraces her gleeful personality, honoring her by thinking positive and shedding light in dark places as Angela so often did. What do you guys think about that case? I think it is honestly devastating. It brings such a chilling feeling to me. I think it's because Rob was right there. He was so close to if his engine hadn't stalled, Angela would probably still be here today. I'm not saying that she passed away because we don't know what happened to her. We don't know if she's still alive. We have no idea where she is. We have no idea what happened after Rob lost her that night when his engine stalled. So, I mean, I can't imagine what he went through. He probably blamed himself, which is so unfortunate to ever have to go through. It's unfortunate to have to go through any of this. This is horrible. And I, I just, I can't, it just leaves such an unsettling feeling with me. Um, and I think the fact that she was pregnant as well makes me a little unsettled too, because that involves a child. And you guys know how I feel about that. It makes me so sad. But I want to know your guys' thoughts and opinions on this cases. If you guys have any information on it, please reach out to me. You guys know where to find me. I'm at the Crime Vine Podcast on Instagram. And if you want to find me on Twitter, I'm at the Crime Vine PO1. Also, again, I want to thank you guys so much for listening to my podcast and continuing to support it. And if you could please just take a few moments to rate and review this podcast on whatever platform you're listening to, I would greatly appreciate it. Thank you guys again so much, and I will talk to you guys in my next podcast episode.